Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Next week, we will be returning to 1 Corinthians, our walk through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, But this week, we will finish what we started last week. If you weren't with us last week, last week I shared some of the things that I learned while I was on my summer sabbatical. And I learned a lot, uh, but above all, I learned that when you rest... It's easier to listen to God. I spend so much time talking at God. And I needed rest to actually stop talking and start receiving and listening. You know, it's amazing. Even as we study his word, we can think thoughts at him. We can talk at him. And it's not personal. So one of the things I was listening for was a clearer sense of my mission. When I graduated from seminary in 2009, I was given the task to create a personal mission statement. How does my personal mission align with God's mission? And as I read that, I don't recognize the person that that mission statement describes. And so... Ten years in the ministry, I thought, hey, I'm rounding first base, going to second. It might be a good idea during this time of summer rest to ask God to clarify what it is that he's calling me to do. And last week we talked about this. It's my encouragement to all of you to do the same. Take a day of rest like the Lord doesn't just recommend a day of rest. He commands it. He tells you this is what I'm giving you. Receive it. And on this day of rest that we have every single week of every year of our lives, we can listen to God. We can enjoy what he has made. And we can be receptive and slow down. So I shared with you what God gave me. God told me to show up with God's help. And last week we talked about that first phrase, show up. And we learn that God saves you in order that you might show up, not just to church, but show up to life, show up to what God is doing in his creation, show up in all of who you are, every single aspect of your story. And instead, too often we stay on the sidelines, even though God is calling us to get out onto the field. And we talked about barriers to getting off of the sidelines, things that get in the way. We talked about false guilt. When we tell God that we are too guilty to get onto the field, even though he has washed away all of our guilt on the cross. We talked about false voices that we listen to in our head, voices of accusation, voices of condemnation. Voices of shame, voices of intimidation, even though we have the Father's voice that says, You are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I am well pleased in Christ. Come, take part in what it is that I'm calling you to do. I know your issues. Come. But we listen to the false voices instead, we listen to false scripts. When we uncritically accept an enslaving script that was often handed to us early in our life, instead of interrogating that script with God 
saying, what is of you in this and what is not of you? When I was in seminary, I met many people who were studying to be pastors because parental pressure. And it was very disorienting for them to discover that and for them to actually step into what it was that God was calling them to do. As it is for all of us. We talked about false security when we stay on the sidelines because we imagine that the sidelines are safer than being in God's mission. Even though we know that Jesus is off of the sidelines engaging and wherever he is is always the safest place to be. It's not predictable, but it is safer. We talked about false humility when we stay on the sidelines because we tell ourselves that we're not gifted enough. Even though the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church that the less or the least impressive in that cultural moment, the least impressive gifts were actually the indispensable gifts in the body of Christ. And he calls all of us indispensable. Put another way, we learned last week that we are all hobbits. You don't remember me saying that? Okay, let me explain. <laughs> I didn't say it last week. But what are hobbits? Hobbits prefer to stay home. Hobbits like to sip tea. Hobbits don't like to involve themselves in adventure. Bilbo, you know him? Bilbo. This is what he says. He says, and I'm quoting, he says, We are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. Make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them. But hobbits are exactly who rescue and save Middle Earth. And that story rings so true because this is exactly how God is using us in his mission. He's taking people that would prefer to sip tea at home in our own comfort. And he's saying, I'm calling you out. Get out of the sidelines. Get involved in what I'm calling you to do. He calls you indispensable, which means he wants all of you to show up. Your story, your personality, your trauma, your gifts, your failures. Nothing is wasted. Show up. But what do we show up with? And that's the question for us this morning. God has called us off the sidelines, onto the playing field, but we could ask, what is the playbook? What is it that we are showing up with? And so we'll talk about that. But let's pray first. Holy Spirit, would you come? We don't need a motivational talk this morning. We want your empowering presence. We want you to open our eyes to Jesus. We want change in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you could say it all started in 1995 when our family got in the mail a piece of mail that was offering 12 free CDs for one penny. 
You guys know what this is? Columbia House. Do you remember Columbia House? Well, so I got that, and I was at the right age, and I was at the right time. I was kind of angsty, and I'm like, this is for me. And so I asked my sister and her friends what 12 CDs I should buy. I won't tell you what those are. You can ask me after church. And ever since then, I've been addicted. Not to mail-order schemes, but to, to, but to albums. Albums, okay? Uh, I don't care the delivery mechanism of the album. It can be a CD. It can be a vinyl. It can be Spotify. It can even be a cassette tape. But it is, for me, a very important thing when musicians make albums. And by the way, I refuse to support this trend I'm seeing about artists releasing singles. Have you noticed this lately? Like everybody, like Spotify, for instance. If you listen to Spotify, you will see new release from your favorite artist, and you go click on it, and it's one song. I'm like, no, that's not how it works. An album, it's like writing a chapter instead of releasing a book. You don't do it that way. I love albums. So one of the hardest questions of all time is this. What are the five best albums ever? It goes like this. What are the five best albums of all time? Rank them. So you're not even allowed to ask, name five amazing albums. You have to name the best, and then the second best, and then the third best, and then the fourth best. It's an absurd ask, but it's one that people like me love asking and love answering. And then when you finally come up with a list, somebody in your group is going to say, you left out something. You left out Sgt. Peppers. You left out Illmatic. You know, whatever it is. It's a trap question. In the first century, uh, this was a common question among teachers of God's law, not what's your favorite album. But they wondered if you could rank God's law from 1 to 613. It was a very dangerous question in those days uh, because nobody wanted to denigrate any of God's law. And so if you started ranking these laws, someone in that group would inevitably say, you left out this? How could you? It's a biblical minefield. And that's what's happening in Matthew 22. If you open your Bibles to this passage, Matthew 22, 34... We can read what happens. The teachers of the law bring Jesus into this biblical minefield. Starting in verse 34, God's word says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Pharisees, again, are teachers of the law. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What's your favorite album? And so what does Jesus do? Surprisingly, he actually responds to the question. Most of the time, when people approach Jesus in the Gospels to trap him, Jesus doesn't ever answer the question. He, he responds with a counter question. So this is a unique situation in which Jesus actually rises to this challenging question. It's a good question. It's a trap question. And what's he say? Verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
And so what's going on here? Well, Jesus, first of all, is quoting the Shema. Okay, the Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. And you have to understand that the Shema was the central identity marker. It was the central confession of every faithful Jewish man and woman. They recited it first thing in the morning. They recited it first thing before they went to bed. We are called to love God with all of who we are. But then he does something unthinkable in that day. He adds to it. He adds a well-known law, Leviticus 19, verse 18, which is about loving our neighbor, loving others. No big deal, right? I mean, we read this. We heard this in Bible study. We heard this in Sunday school if you grew up in the church. We hear even public figures who aren't believers saying this is the great thing about Jesus. And so we don't think it's a big deal. But one New Testament scholar asks us to imagine adding a line to something like, say, the Apostles' Creed. If you grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed like I did, we often recite the Apostles' Creed here. Could you imagine adding another line to it? It would be explosive. And in the same way, even at a higher level, this is what Jesus is doing. Here this writer says, but adding is just exactly what Jesus said. Instead of a love God Shema, it is a love God and others Shema. So we could ask, what is a truly human life? What does it mean to flourish as a human being? What is God's design for us? What does true spirituality mean? Not simply love of God, but love of God that flows into love of others. And so the question, what do we show up to do? The answer must be in this passage. Oftentimes, churches try to come up with mission statements, and they're usually very good, and they're very pithy. You know, it might be a good idea, I think, if just every church across the globe just sort of said, here's our mission statement. It's from Jesus. It's pretty good. What do we show up to do? Jesus says we show up with love. Now, love, sadly, is a very confused word. In our day, I think there are two false ways to understand love. And then there's what the scriptures describe. And so let's talk about the two false ways before we dive in to what it is that we're showing up with. And the first is sentimental love. And the second is what we'll call selfish love. And so sentimental love is basically what I think all of us immediately think of when we hear the word love. Love God, love others. We immediately think of a sentimental version of love, which has to do basically with an emotional state. An emotional state of happiness and bliss. Now, emotions are good. They're designed by God. We are emotional creatures, so I'm not denigrating emotions. But when we reduce love and what Jesus is describing here as simply an emotional state, then we are missing the picture. It's not butterflies in the stomach. Sentimental love 
has its problems. In fact, uh, the best secular marriage counseling even critiques this vision of love. What I'm trying to say is you don't need to be a Christian to see the problems with sentimental love being your orienting principle in life. So the Gottman Institute, for instance, says it this way, and I'm quoting. Happiness is not a strong, stable foundation upon which to build lasting, committed love. I'll say that again. Happiness is not a strong, stable foundation upon which to build lasting, committed love. It is simply too unstable, fleeting, and constantly in flux. And the ways in which we achieve happiness changes as we change in time. Related to sentimental love is selfish love. This is when we see love as kind of like a stack of tokens that we have that we need to spend wisely in order to get things in return. It's like we all have a limited stash of love tokens, right? And we live life thinking, okay, if I dispense a little love to my kids, they'll get back to me this vision of life that I want. If I give a little love to my spouse, then, then I will get back something that I really desperately need. If I give a little love to my boss, maybe, my, maybe, maybe things will go a little bit better for me. And we start to see love as sort of this marketplace exchange. In fact, at best, it's a marketplace exchange. At worst, it's manipulation. We love in order to get something in return. Many people love their kids so long as they turn out exactly as they want them to be. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And so if love is not sentiment, and if love is not self-interest, what is it? Well, I'm a preacher, so I'll try to stick with the S's. We'll say sacrificial. Or as I like to put it, a life of loving others is a life of helping others. Paul Miller, he convinced me of this about 10 years ago. That when you hear the word love in the Bible, especially as love is being directed to other people, replace the word love with help. Why? It's more than help, but it's a helpful thing to do because what it does is it removes sentimental love and it removes selfish love from the equation. It reminds us that love is actually helping someone else flourish. Oftentimes you are, you are denying yourself You're sacrificing your preferences in order that the other person might flourish. You're helping. Who wants to actually help someone move in on moving day? I mean, let's be honest, right? But but when you but love is exactly that. You walk into something sacrificially. I mean, just look at how the scriptures attest to this. In Hebrews 13, we read this in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Paul says in Philippians 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests. Paul takes that as a given. That's, that's a given. So don't just do that. But also to the interests of others. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I mean, Jesus just said in the passage we just heard that these two commands fulfill all the law. Paul is coming alongside and saying, when you bear someone else's burdens, you are confessing this new Shema that Jesus gives us. So instead of asking, was I loving to my coworker today? We could ask, was I helpful to my coworker today? 
or after church, did I love my church well today? You could ask on your drive home, was I helpful today at church? It's a great question. And we believe this is why God saved us, to show up with God's help. So I want us to think about this. There are two ways a lot of us think about salvation. We'll call them Salvation A and Salvation B. Salvation A is when we believe that God rescued us, that God saved us in order to save us. Salvation B is God rescued us, God saves us from our destructive self-interest in order to release us to loving God and loving others. Okay? Salvation A is much like Price is Right. God calls you. An amazing calling. He calls you by grace out of the crowd and you come cheering up to take part in this amazing thing where you might win some prizes. That's Salvation A. Salvation B is much like getting a call from the Red Cross saying we need help. There's some hurricane victims. And you're being called to actually take part in something that's helpful and loving towards others. That's what God is calling us to do. He's freeing us from ourselves in order to love Him and to love others. But here's the problem. Uh, This vision is as beautiful as it is impossible. None of us are born, none of us naturally are inclined to sort of give and forgive. Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian, he sort of summarizes this sort of life of, of loving others as giving and forgiving. Isn't that amazing? Giving, really giving, and forgiving. And not just the people you like, but your enemies too. And when you start to think about that and let that percolate into your full heart and mind, you will start to realize that it is humanly impossible. It's beautiful. It's impossible. To live a life of giving with no strings attached... Not marketplace giving, I'm giving to get something back. Not manipulative giving, I'm giving to get something back. But a true gift. And then forgiveness, think about that. Forgiving someone who has harmed you. Giving and forgiving is impossible. Left to ourselves. So I want to finish out here just by thinking about ways that that Jesus, ways that the, the scriptures enable us and give us a paradigm to actually do this life of giving and forgiving. I mean, Gordon Fee, he says this, he says, love is not something one can do or feel on one's own. Thanks, Captain Obvious, right? Nor is it to be distorted into its current North American version of good feelings towards someone so that love is turned on its head. This prominent New Testament scholar says, Love has become identified with what I do or feel for another for the sake of my own self-fulfillment. So how on earth do we do something that turns it right back? I would suggest three things. Number one, be loved. Okay, so if we're called to a life of giving and forgiving, I would say the very first thing is to receive the gift and to be forgiven. By God Himself, through Christ. 
this impossibility is exactly what God offers to you. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, listen to this, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Now he could have put a period right there. This is my commandment, that you love one. And he would go in the annals of just great teachers, great moral philosophers for all of life. But listen to what he says afterwards. He says, this is my commandment of you, to love one another as I have loved you. Now, question. Is he saying, do this in the same manner in which I love you? Or is he saying, love one another as I have loved you? Because I am loving you right now. Which is it? I'll let you wrestle with that. But he gives you a hint in the following verse where he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is telling his disciples before he does just that. This is the only way you will love is if you love as I have loved you. Jesus knows, in other words, that a life of love is impossible in our strength, which is why he came in the first place. It's why he died for us. Notice who loved us first. Jesus loved us first. And that love of Jesus unlocks, it unlocks our ability to love others. And we no longer need anything from other people. Do you understand? If, if, if we receive the gift of salvation, if we receive forgiveness, then we no longer need that from any other human. And therefore, we can give it to other people. When our need is erased, our ability to love grows. We will not be able to even think of others until we are first loved deeply, until we are first held in Jesus' arms. Can we even think of someone else in our life? I help you just think of that. As you wake up in the morning, as you go into your day, think of Jesus like with a giant bear holding you all day. As I have loved you, as I have loved you, Joe, as I have loved you, I say, be loved. If you want to live a life of love, be loved. Number two, I would say, let Jesus love through you. I think the other way that we love well or show up with God's help is by letting Jesus love through us. Jesus, we confess, dwells in us. And so often the best love we offer is simply allowing Jesus to love through us. And then finally... I would say rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't talk about loving others without talking about God, the Holy Spirit. If you want, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, or you can listen along. Galatians 5, 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I have a feeling there's a reason love is first in line. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. The image here is not individual fruits, but a cluster of fruits that God, the Holy Spirit, is producing in his people. I want you to think of it this way. We believe that God has full restoration in mind with all of his people. We could call that our future glory self, our resurrection self, when, as Paul will teach us in the book of 1 Corinthians, we are not animated anymore by the flesh, but we are animated fully by the Holy Spirit. We could think of it negatively as a life without sin, or we could think of it positively as a life that is fully human, restored, resurrected in Christ. And what we hear from Paul time and time again is that God the Spirit has broken in to this current moment of our lives by Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, we experience today a real, not an imagined, but a real foretaste of that future day. One scholar says the Holy Spirit sort of operates as a divine time warp, a divine time warp where the future resurrection comes into the present. And so when Paul says the fruit of the spirit, what he's simply saying is the Holy Spirit is creating what you will one day be in full today. And it's bit by bit. It's like how fruit grows. But what the implication is of this picture is that we cannot love on our own. God the Spirit will make it so. We need the Holy Spirit to live a life of love. So if you're like me, you're immediately thinking, what on earth does that mean? And I have thought years and years and years about what that actually means in practice. And I've come to the most frustrating conclusion. Frustrating because it's so obvious. You ready for it? Cry out for the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. I think of... What Paul tells us to do in one letter, Galatians 5, he says, walk by the spirit, be led by the spirit, keep in step with the spirit. Some scholars even point out that Paul's command to be filled by the Holy Spirit is Paul's most fundamental command in all of his letters. Be filled by the spirit. And so God, fill me with your spirit today so I can love others well is probably the best answer I have to your question. What do I do? I'm at the end of myself. I'm viewing all the ways in which I'm manipulating others for myself. I I, I feel like I can't love well. I feel like I'm not helpful. I feel like I'm not able to give. I'm not able to forgive. Then what do I do? What do I do? Cry out, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Create in me. 
what is most true about me in Christ and what will be most true about me on that day of resurrection. Make it happen today. I think what your neighbor needs, I think what your friends need, I think if you're married, what your spouse needs, what your roommate needs, what your children need, what your nieces and nephews need, what whoever person is in your life needs most is for you to pray that prayer. God, fill me with your spirit so I can love well today. I think this is a very liberating prayer and posture in life because it's not up to you to be awesome. It's not up to you to have the right words. You can simply be open to the Spirit helping another person. We show up with God's help. We show up with God's help. So let's pray that right now together. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit today and every day after, moment by moment in our life, so that we can love others well. And we pray this in Jesus' name who loved us first. Amen.